Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a weekly podcast about the latest new episode of Star Trek. This week we're looking at Season 3, Episode 7 of Star Trek Discovery, Unification 3. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick. I'm the media guy. And I'm the philosophy guy, Dr. Rodney Cup. Our website is the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And you can find links there to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And we're also available on lots of podcast sites that you can find linked at that website. And some of those sites like iTunes allow reviews. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review to help more people find us. We'd appreciate it. And I want to give a heads up, Rodney. I found something in this episode that to me is a really interesting connection to an original series episode. It's probably just a coincidence. If it's not a coincidence, it's a really, really, really deep dive Easter egg. Uh, as I said, it's probably a coincidence the writers didn't even realize, but it's kind of cool in my opinion. We're not going to talk about it right at this moment, but when we come to the part of the podcast where we are talking about, about the meaning and, and the lessons so we'll bring it up at that point. Okay, so there's something for our listeners to look forward to. But our first order of business is a brief description of the episode. And we're going to try to make this short, but we need to warn you that there are spoilers on the way. And Michael will give us that summary this week. And there is a lot going on in this episode. Admiral Vance sends Discovery to Vulcan because Burnham has discovered that the Vulcans collected data in a program called SB-19 that may contain more information about the burn. Vulcan is now called Nivar, and it's the home of both the Vulcan and the Romulan peoples. They collectively believe that their dangerous SB-19 ex experiment which was uh, with an alternative to warp drive 100 years ago uh, and was mandated by the Federation. They believe it caused the burn, and that's resulted in great turmoil within their combined culture. But Burnham believes that the burn came from a different direction. Now, Navarre is no longer part of the Federation, but Admiral Vance believes that Burnham might be able to acquire the information because she is sister to the revered Spock in both the Vulcan and, and Romulan cultures. At Navarre, however, Discovery has pretty flatly refused access to the data because the people there essentially don't trust the Federation. So Burnham invokes an ancient right for a tribunal to discern the truth. It's called the Tikalin Ket. Because her request is considered to be a lost cause, she's assigned an advocate from the Quilat Milat. That's a sect of warrior nuns who champion lost causes and who believe in absolute candor. And remember, we met them first in the Picard series. Burnham's advocate turns out to be, surprise, her mother. Last season, Gabrielle Burnham had thought that she'd return to Terralisium in her Red Angel suit, but she ended up coming to the future still at that planet Esau 4. And by the time she got there in the, in the future, or in now time, for discovery, Esau 4 had been colonized, and the colonists turned her over to the Quilat Milat because they thought saving her would be a lost cause. But she did recover and eventually joined the group. 
So the tribunal is just absolutely brutal on Michael, who tries to hide the divisions in her own mind about where her own loyalties lay to Starfleet or to her own objectives. And Gabrielle ends up sounding more like a prosecutor, accusing Michael of having clouded methods and motives and a lack of honesty. But eventually, and it takes some time, eventually she gets Michael to bear her soul, to speak with absolute candor. Michael admits the Federation gave her a mission and a purpose and a place and a family, and that she and her crew saved all sentient life in the universe, and that she and Discovery today have the mandate from Starfleet to solve the biggest and the most troubling problems in the galaxy. In responding to her mother, Michael realizes that she and the Discovery crew and Starfleet as a whole are living up to the best ideals of the Federation. Gabrielle does admit that over years of observing Michael via the Red Angel suit, she always saw Michael and her fellows serve the greater good in spite of often insurmountable odds. And as part of this process, Michael comes to realize she does belong on Discovery in Starfleet for the duration. But her request for the SB-19 data remains highly divisive on Navarre. So invoking Spock's ideas about love and the greater good, Michael withdraws her request for the data because although the burn destroyed much of the Federation, she will not allow her request for the SB-19 data to further divide the factions on Navarre. She vows to keep searching and to share whatever she does find with Navarre because she trusts them. Separate from the people that are on the tribunal quorum, the Navarre president hears Michael's honesty and decides that trusting her is worth the risk, so she authorizes release of the data to discovery. Gabrielle will remain on Navarre because Michael is no longer a lost cause, and the president leaves the door open to continued dialogue with the Federation. And then there's a subplot. Uh, Saru offers Tilly the post of acting first officer until he finds a permanent replacement. Tilly has mixed feelings about accepting. She seeks advice from Stamets, who typically of him thinks taking orders from her would be deeply weird. Later, however, he and most of the regular cast essentially accost Tilly in engineering and encourage her to accept. Everyone in turn saying, say yes say yes, say yes. And her first order is for Michael Burnham to find the cause of the burn and help rebuild the Federation. And that is, like I said, a lot going on in this episode. That's a good first order. Thank you for that. Uh, at this point, we're going to go ahead and look at some of the individual elements of the episode that we found to be significant for some reason or other. And I want to start by saying, I think this episode was probably very emotional for a lot of fans. We actually see Spock in flashbacks, the Leonard Nimoy Spock and the other Spocks. We see three different actors portraying Spock at different points in his life. <laughs> this episode, uh, Michael meeting her mother, coming to grips with her own feelings in a very kind of traumatic process for Michael and Tilly making her decision all, I think, tugged at the heartstrings. I find, I, I've, and it's true, this episode was particularly emotional, but it seems to me, you know, relative to the other Star Trek series, uh, Discovery is pretty emotional, wouldn't you say so? 
Yeah, could be. It's. I mean, again, it's it's a different it's a different era in terms of television production, and uh, so I think we are seeing a different approach in some ways here. Uh, I want to note, and it's all over the internet, so it's not anything original to our podcast here, but Nivar is a term that's been around Star Trek fandom for a long time. It, it originated in the 60s. An author named Dorothy Jones wrote essentially fan fiction Star Trek stories for a fan, a fanzine, a fan magazine. And she defined Nivar as meaning to form. As she described it, it was an art form practice on Vulcan in which a subject is examined deliberately from two different viewpoints or considering that it has two different aspects or or natures. And it's a reference to duality, two who are one, two halves that make up a whole, which is as we see um, the society, the Navarre society combining Vulcan and Romulan, they were the same people probably thousands of years ago, but they're now very different as they come together. And the term Navarre, it's been used in some other sanctioned print stories, and it was the name of a Vulcan starship in Star Trek Enterprise. And I want to note, you have to look very, very, very carefully because there are only quick flashes, but the crest or the logo or the pin that all of the people from Navarre are wearing combines the traditional Romulan bird of prey, if you will, logo, which was a bird of prey with the wings outstretched and two different planets and its claws for Romulan and Remus. But in the middle now is the Vulcan Idic symbol infinite diversity and infinite uh, combinations. And so again, that represents the merger of the two societies. I also wanna note that in the visuals and the graphics here, uh, we see what at first look appears to be a moon of Vulcan. Although in the original series, Spock very famously said Vulcan has no moon. And back in, in season one, in the episode Leth, they were on Vulcan and we saw things in the sky that appeared to be moons or, or whatever. And also remember in the 2009 JJ Star Trek uh, movie, Kirk and Spock end up on a habitable planet that's close enough to watch Vulcan implode. So maybe what we really have here is a double planet system. And Spock probably would have been literal in saying there is no moon if it's really a double planet. But so what that means is that when the Romulans left Vulcan long ago, they were leaving a world that apparently was part of a double planet system. And of course, they went to a different star system and took up occupancy of the double planets Romulus and Remus. So that was kind of an interesting parallel, if if that's what they really intend by that object in the sky near the planet. I also note, speaking of the sky and that, as the president of Navarre and Saru really have their first conversation, and they, through the episode, they kind of develop a bit of a relationship. As they have their first heart-to-heart -heart talk, they're looking out a window, and we see the light from the sun rising over the planet. That sunrise, that, that growth of light, I think is certainly intended to be symbolic. Yeah, I noticed that too. Uh, I thought it was a very nice touch. And as that happens, Saru says, I'm troubled that the Federation is so reduced, but I am heartened that those who remain are committed to its core values. So I understood it to be symbolic, maybe of the Federation's values and that they are still alive. 
And also at the very end of the episode, when Discovery leaves Navarre, we see very clearly there's aurora over the planet, what we would call Northern Lights. Uh, there's aurora over the planet, and that's another, I think, symbolic kind of light. I thought it was interesting in the Quorum, in the Tikalanket, which is really kind of a tribunal, there is really kind of judgmental. In my mind, the most reasonable of the three was the Romulan. You had the Romulan representative, you had a traditionalist Vulcan representative, and then you Just. had one who was attempting to span the two. But really, it was the Romulan who was most uh, reasonable and most willing to provide this information to Burnham and Discovery. And I guess, I mean, they all had their reasons, but if I if I may, I, I, I kind of want to talk about this to Colin Kett. And I don't know if you are going to agree, agree with this, Michael, but I, I thought it was a confused mess. But it's going to take me some time to to make my case here. Have at so, it. Okay. But according to Burnham, right, who's no stranger to Vulcan culture, right, uh, the purpose of the quorum was to unearth deep truths and to allow her to defend her hypothesis that the burn did not originate from Navarre. And in so doing to rely on logic and fact. That's what she said. Now, Gabrielle, her mother, says that the truths that need to be unearthed are the intentions of the participants, ultimately. But that's clearly different. I mean, this is very confused. Notice that any facts about the people participating in the quorum as Burnham understands it are irrelevant. I mean, the, the merits of her hypothesis, any hypothesis, have nothing to do with the motives of the person making it, the hypothesis. Shiva, one of the quorum members, says during the quorum that the purpose of it is to determine if we're going to share the SB19 data based on scientific evidence. And that's different. That's not merely the truth of Burnham's hypothesis, but rather whether they're going to share the data. So that's confused. Tarina before the quorum tells Burnham that a classic tactic during the Tikal enquete is to ruthlessly assail the credibility of the challenger. Well, that does not sound like a scientific inquiry to me. That sounds like a legal proceeding. Or like politics. Or like politics. Yeah. Well, you definitely can see that there's a lot of politics and and I guess culture also. And and you know, when they arrive at Navarre. Tarina makes it clear that the whole issue of SB19 is politically and culturally sensitive, to be fair. But we're to understand that this quorum is supposed to be a scientific inquiry, not a legal proceeding. But that's what it ends up looking like and sounding like. Gabrielle tells Burnham that the quorum members, rather than just assessing the evidence on its own merits, will see what they need to see, just like the rest of us. She says, the quorum members will all have their own truths, facts, and logic that are vying for air. Now, we might want to understand her as saying, and I would hope that she's saying that they have their own knowledge to bring to the hearing that Burnham does not possess. Burnham's not omniscient. Uh, but when she says that they will see what they need to see, then it sounds as if they're not discussing science and objective truth after all. They're, they're bringing their own subjective perspectives to this. And that does not sound like a scientific inquiry to me. Eventually, uh, the point of the Tikal and Ket, or at least this one, 
uh, turns out to be to assess the trustworthiness of the participants. Uh, again, that's different. Uh, but in order to do that, they have to lay bare the motives of the participants. And in order to do that, Gabrielle cross-examines Burnham in order to get her to speak truthfully, truthfully being about her own motives, not about the truth of her hypothesis about the source of the burn. And um, she does a good job here. She gets Burnham to say that the Federation is acting in the best interests of Navarre, although Gabrielle, I think she misspeaks and says that, asks if the Federation is acting in the best intentions of Navarre, which I didn't understand. But I think she meant interests. And Burnham also says that she is acting in the best interest of, of Navarre, but Gabrielle points out that Burnham doesn't know if she belongs in Starfleet anymore. So how can all of these things be true? It seems that either the Federation or Burnham has an ulterior motive. But again, all of this is irrelevant to the merits of Burnham's hypothesis. So what is the purpose of the Tikal Inket uh, in the end? What happens here is, and you pointed this out earlier, is Burnham is forced to rediscover, I think, her motivations, her true motivations, and to recommit to the Federation and the crew of Discovery. That's the A storyline. That's the main storyline. But that was grafted onto this to call in Ket in such a way that I, I think it's the story is incoherent. It, it doesn't make sense to me. And in the end, why have the to call in Ket? Well, I, I guess one answer to the question is that as a result, Burnham withdraws her request for the data to spare Navarre the conflict over it. And by doing so, she proves to Tarina that she can be trusted, right? But then the point of the to call in Ket was to find out if she, if she and the Federation can be trusted. It's not the scientific inquiry about the truth or the source of the burn. But if that's the case, then why call the to call in Ket? I'm just completely confused by this. And it and it bugs me, Michael. It bugs me. <laughs> you know, I've I've thought for a long time, not not just in Discovery, but maybe a long time in Star Trek, that writers often have trouble writing a truly logical character. And as a result, we have seen, you know, Vulcans in many different series that really have quite a bit of emotion to them that they're maybe not displaying overtly, but the emotions are, are still there. Uh, I mean, the idea of ruthlessly discrediting the opposition, that's not the application of logic. I logic, logic extremists are fundamentally not logical, you know, logic extremists that are using essentially terrorism and things like that. And, and you're right that as we, as we see it in this episode, the Tikal Enquet is not really a forum for logic. I, I mean, maybe it was once upon a time in ancient Vulcan history. Maybe it's changed now due to the Romulan influence. That had occurred to me. You know, I think in, um, in the original series of Star Trek, there were claims you can't force a Vulcan to experience emotion. Well, I think that the real truth is of, of the characters as we've, as we've seen them over the years is there is emotion there. Uh, 
but their culture is to learn to control uh, control emotions and not be controlled by them. And we see the three different participants in the in the quorum really approach this differently. And uh, so rather than just the two perspectives, we we see three. But as Gabrielle pointed out in the very beginning, the real audience was the president, not the participants in the quorum. Right, right. That's true. I did notice, just interesting to me, when Burnham leaves the chamber, there's an audience on both sides, and one side is mainly Romulans, and the other side is mainly people from Discovery. And did you notice the the crew of Discovery, as Burnham walks out, they jump to their feet, kind of in stand at attention, and you know, Starfleet doesn't stand at attention like today's military does, but they jump to their feet in in recognition of or in honor of of her words. And I thought that was a very a very nice touch. Mm-hmm. Couple other things about this episode. Before the episode premieres, again, a lot of talk on the internet because in the Next Generation episode, The Face of the Enemy, they established that Romulan star drives, if you will, use an artificial quantum singularity in their engine core instead of matter-antimatter reactions. And at least that might imply that the Romulans didn't need dilithium if they weren't using matter antimatter, but that's not what we saw here in Unification 3. Navarre did not have an alternative drive system from the Romulan side of the house that was just waiting to be used free from dilithium. The one they were trying to develop did look a little bit like a transport portal, but again, if, I mean, the Borg had transport portals, and and 700 years prior to this time, they had a Borg cube that they could disassemble and look at. You know, I they could have been they using just, transport yeah, corridors all along. And again, there's no evidence that they needed dilithium. So I don't know. There's there's kind of some some questions about this whole no other faster than light drive turned out to be a a reasonable alternative to our conventional warp drive and then what did you think about tilly being being acting first officer i was we talked about this last week and i didn't i didn't put much credence in the idea of tilly being tapped i thought saru would be more likely to to follow someone who's appropriate to the rank structure. And there and there's hardly anybody on board the higher rank than lieutenant. So I thought it was going to be one of the full lieutenants. From the writer's perspective though, I can I can appreciate the choice uh, because there'll be, I mean, she's she's a character that a lot of people like and and there'll be a lot of really strong character development for her. Right. And I I agree, but um I'd like to harp on this for a little while. Okay. If I, may. I was hoping um, as I said last week, uh, that the writers would start to develop the minor characters this season, if only just a little. Um, but I, I think it's clear now that was a false hope. Um, now that Tilly is acting first officer, let's go ahead and look at Saru's justification for asking Tilly to be his first officer. Okay. Okay. So he says, he said the experience of jumping through a wormhole happened 30 years into the future is enough to say that Tilly has completed the command training program. Fine. He says Tilly is suited to leadership because she has risen to the occasion. And he thinks she can help others do the same. No doubt. Um, He says that Tilly will always put the needs of Starfleet and the Federation ahead of her own wishes. 
fair enough. And also he says that this is in the best interest of our ship. Now, if you look at all those justifications, it seems to how could you not say that about at least some of the more senior members of the crew, right? Uh, who are more experienced. Tilly yourself points out that most of the crew has more experience than she has. And plus, we were just shown a few episodes ago how well Tilly, Stamets, and Reno work together in engineering. Why are you going to break up the team? So I think in the end, Tilly is first officer because she's one of the major characters, and that is it. And for me, that's a problem. Um, so I this I, w- I was surprised by this, and I'm not entirely happy with it. Although I, I, I love Tilly. She's a great character, no doubt. She is a supporting character, but she's a more prominent one than some of the others who have been more in the background. Right. They have been a little bit more forward this season, but 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 not that much, not as much as we might have hoped. I, I think, uh, as I said, she is maybe the best person to to go through a character development arc as she responds to these responsibilities. And and there's potential there. Remember, in the Mirror Universe, she was a captain. Right, right. But and- but it. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, this is her goal, right? From the beginning of the of the series season one, this, she wants to command a ship at some point. So I, I, I agree with you. I and mean, this, this, this is some character development for her that makes sense, given what we know about her. My guess, or even my prediction is that by the end of the season, remember, Tilly is an acting first officer. Right. Right. Uh, my prediction is by the end of the season, Michael Burnham will be right back there as first officer. Kind of like what happened in season one. By the end of the season, she had fully redeemed herself and, and uh, um, you know, she had, had the position or the position back. I have a feeling that that's where we'll end up this season. Now, as you noted, we know that there's another season of Discovery coming. And so there may be some things here that continue on into the next season since they knew well before. Well, I think they knew while they were still writing and finishing up production here that the next season was was authorized. So anyway, let's let's move on now uh, to talk about the meaning in the episode, the messages that the writers and the producers wanted us to to take away. As I thought about this, it's it's a little bit hard to define the theme of this episode. There are different ways we could come at it, but I think that the most common recurring idea, at least, even if they don't say it out loud, is this question of home, understanding what and where home is. And we see this in many different directions. Navarre is a blended home world. Uh, Michael is trying to figure out where she belongs, in effect, where her home is, although I'm not sure she uses the word home, but she spent a year essentially on the edge of the law as a courier, and she got used to being in the gray areas and to kind of doing what she wanted to. And so we have seen her struggling with becoming part of something bigger again. Tilly is trying to figure out if she can be number one, in effect, if she can be at home in that role. The, the president of Navarre gives Michael the advice, be honest, especially with yourself. And all, again, although it isn't said explicitly, I think honesty is needed to figure out these questions about, about our place and, and our home. 
Gabrielle, um, near the end, after the tri tribunal, tells Michael, you don't need to choose between the person you used to be and the person you are now. You shouldn't. Duty and joy go hand in hand. Duty is there so you can continue to pursue your happiness, and joy is so that you have something real to fight for. And again, the duty part of that equation is duty to Starfleet, because when you're on your own, you don't really have a duty to yourself, but the duty is to the Starfleet part of that, of that equation, to Starfleet as a home. So I think the question that Michael has been struggling with is, who really is Michael's real authentic self? Is it really just herself, her individual self? Or is it really being the authentic Michael part of that Starfleet structure? And all through the modern incarnations of Star Trek, you know, over the last few years, Discovery and Picard and, and even Lower Decks, this question of who we're supposed to be, who we're meant to be, who we want to be, is just a really pervasive question that comes up again and again. And who you are, where your place is, those are tightly linked together. So I think even that fits in with this theme of, of home, finding your place. I, I really like that analysis, Michael. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. <laughs> As kind of, kind of a side part of that, you know, we talked last week about redemption and different people who have a redemption story aren't going on here. And this episode really really hammers Michael, draws on her very checkered background and her need for redemption. And and her mom points out her, I mean, you can't call it anything than mutiny. Season one, episode one, Michael mutinied against, uh, against her captain. And this season, the violation of orders. Michael took quite a beating in this episode. It was productive to her story arc, but it was, it was pretty tough on her. Yeah, that's um, true, and it and it's further confirmation that that redemption that theme is playing a major part of this season of discovery. That's a really good point too. Uh, there was another thing that that you mentioned that I was thinking about that just occurred to me. I'm going back a little bit here, but when Gabrielle said that the duty and joy go hand in hand, that duty is there so that you can continue to pursue your happiness. That sounds kind of Aristotelian to me. And being I, that you are the philosophy professor, right. tell us about that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wish I could. I, I wish I'd uh, prepared something about that, but, but I'm just thinking about it now. And, and maybe I could say something about it next week. But it does sound a lot like virtue theory and ethics in, in philosophy to me. That for Aristotle, that human happiness and flourishing depends on human beings doing their, their duty. But I wanted to mention another ethical principle got a mention in the episode this week. Saru was talking to the president of Navarre, Tarina, when she mentioned this Vulcan slogan, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or at least that got a mention. Tarina told him the scarcity of dilithium was caused in part by the sheer size of the Federation to solve that problem. It stretched member worlds beyond capacity and comfort. In its desire to serve the many, the Federation ignored the needs of the few. And that sounds like a reversal of that uh, principle uh, that maybe was most famously uttered in, in the second Star Trek film. But th there are problems with that principle. And, and one of them is that it, it can require, that is the principle that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. 
it can require that the same people continually make sacrifices for the greater good. And that seems unfair, that the same people are continually called upon to make sacrifices for the benefit of others or for the greater good. And my view is that the next generation showed uh, the weakness of that principle. So for example, in Star Trek Insurrection, the rights of the Baku were going to be violated in order to bring a greater good to the many. That is the planet's fountain of youth. They were going to relocate uh, the Baku so that that could be exploited for the greater good. And I mean, even more fundamental than that, Kirk himself refuted the axiom when he and the rest of the crew, again, mutinied and took, <laughs> uh, took the Enterprise back to the Genesis world to find Spock. They made that point in, in the script that the needs of the few, the one, they consider to be more important than their own careers. Right. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. So I, I think Torino was, was correct to <laughs> sort of reject that principle and say, look, that, 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 that maxim, it's just too simple for us to rely on. It's, it's almost merely a slogan. A, a related note here, if Torino is right about the federation in the 31st 32nd century it seems like it's changed since the 23rd century i mean it sounds as if certain members were compelled to provide the federation with dilithium and this made me think of kirk's negotiations with the halkins over dilithium mining rights he's he told tharn that he would not take their dilithium by force and now it seems as if the federation is maybe maybe not you know, I mean, they're they're not bombarding Federation worlds, but it sounds as if they're they're being compelled, or they well, were being compelled to provide dilithium. And they forced the Navarre scientists to continue to develop their faster than light uh, technology right. that the scientists themselves considered to be dangerous. Right. But they they didn't have the autonomy to just say, "No, we got to stop this." They had to request permission, and they were denied. So yeah, you 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 kind of wonder, and and there are a lot of there are seven hundred years of gap in between, or six hundred years of gap in between that we don't really know what was going on. Uh, if it's okay, I would like to jump to this connection that I oh, found. Right. Um, Good. Uh, a connection that I found to uh, an original series episode, and I have to say. It's probably a coincidence. It's probably not something intentional the writers did, but I think there's a layer of meaning here that to me at least made a connection. Your mileage may vary, but let me let me tell you what I saw. And Rodney, I have a question for you. In the original series, uh, there was an episode in which Spock said, I am not Herbert. <laughs> and what did the character named Adam reply when Spock right. said, I am not Herbert? Right. He's not Herbert. We reach. So Herbert and reach essentially were slang terms used by the right. space hippies right. <laughs> in that episode, The Way to Eden. And, and reach, reach was also an important image in Michael's, Michael Burnham's final advice to Spock in the final episode of last season of Discovery, and then it was reprised in this episode. And so here's the connection that I think the writers didn't realize they were making, but it makes a connection for me at least. Reach 
The use of the term reach in The Way to Eden and also in Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2 last season was essentially a reference to open communication and acceptance and flexible thinking. Herbert, on the other hand, was a reference to inflexible thinking. And Michael's advice to Spock was about making connections to other people, making connections between people. And mm -hmm. now when the writers originally wrote the dialogue last season, I think that their intention was to foreshadow Spock's relationships later in the timeline in the original series with Kirk and McCoy and the others on the Enterprise. But just, you know, think about it. The term reach, it could have been in wider use in Federation culture before Michael came to the future. Uh, she and Spock could, could easily both have been familiar with its usage. And so maybe knowing that Spock would understand the reference, that, that's what Michael Burnham uh, meant uh, in her final advice to Spock. What, the, what she meant, she didn't say it in exactly these words, but maybe what she really meant is, listen to me, little brother, there's a whole galaxy out there full of people who are not Herbert who will reach for you. So I'm not suggesting that the writers last season really drove, dove that deep to find that term reach for those final words. Probably it's a coincidence, but to me at least it's an interesting one and, and we can make some meaning out of it. In the season two finale, it didn't jump out at me this way, but it certainly did this week when I watched it. And, you know, when we look at at messages, we can consider what the producers intend, but we can also find our own messages and our own meaning. And for me, at least, this kind of explains Michael's use of that specific word reach in her advice for Spock. It was a term, you might even say it was a metaphor that she drew from what she and Spock both knew of Federation youth culture because she knew it would have some meaning for Spock. This is interesting. I, I think also, because as, as we know now, Spock helped to reunite <laughs> Vulcans and Romulans, helped them to reach. And in fact, the quorum in the end turned out to be about that, getting a greater understanding of, of others and their, and their motivations. And uh, Burnham points out that the quorum, the Federation, all of that is about building something that's bigger than, than just yourself together with others, which requires some reaching, right, Michael? It does. It does. And when you think also what we know about Romulan history in Picard, we know that that as in the J.J. Abrams movies, Romulus was destroyed by a supernova, but there were lots of Romulan colonies and ships, and so many Romulans themselves did survive. And over a period of time, we don't exactly know what the dynamics were there, but that probably was some of the impetus for whether the Vulcans invited them home or some other way they, they came to accord. But but that was some of the, the the dynamics going on that led to the Romulans returning to Vulcan as we see them there now as as Navarre. By the way, I um I thought Sinequa did a wonderful job of portraying Michael Burnham's surprise. And, you know, when she was told the Vulcans changed their name, you could just see the look of bewilderment on her face. And 
the Romulans are there on Vulcan. You could see the bewilderment on her face. And when her mom started pulling apart her argument, the right. the, the argument on her face, I thought the actress did a did a really wonderful job of portraying you know, when those you first things. mentioned that bewilderment, the, the first thing that jumped to my mind was the look on her face when her mother said during the quorum that Michael wasn't being uh, honest about her own motivations. <laughs> she and she just gave her the look well. that said, Mom, really? <laughs> yeah. You're bringing this up now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I thought I thought she did a, a, a wonderful, wonderful job of portraying that that dynamic in Michael. One of the other things that struck me was, uh, again, near the end of the episode, the, the president of Navarre wonders how much of the man Spock became was the result of who his sister was. And of course, this is all kind of um, retro continuity because most of what we know about Spock was before they created the character of Michael mm -hmm. Burnham. But I was thinking about what are some of the things Spock did that was kind of like Michael? The times where he violated protocol to do what he thought needed doing. And I mean, you know, on two different occasions in the original series and in Discovery, he essentially mutinied, violated orders to take Captain Pike to Talos IV. Two different times he did that when he dropped the Kolinar to rush off to, to encounter V'ger. You know, a, a major violation of protocol just as he was about to graduate. Certainly in the Unification 1 and 2 episodes, he went to Romulus illegally. He was, he was, he went rogue to do that. And uh, I didn't take time to ponder in more detail, but I think over the years we would have come across quite a few times that Spock essentially disobeyed orders because he thought doing something different than the orders was better. And so, yes, it's reverse, it's retconning, it's reverse continuity, but you can see some of the influences Michael Burnham in what became Spock because of the way they have written the character of Michael Burnham and the way they have made, made things fit together. Right. I, this is a good homework lesson uh, for the coming week here uh, to think, and not only just violations of protocol, but maybe there are other ways in which Michael uh, influenced uh, Spock. And, you know, I, I think I, I would be impressed if they made this all to come together in a coherent way. So that, that's, that's something I'd like to think about a little bit more. So next week, it looks as if from the previews that Discovery is going to find the origin of the burn. And so we've been wondering about this for about seven weeks now. So I'm, yeah. I'm is very it, curious. Is it, a, is it a bad guy that did something? Is it a natural phenomenon? Is it an accident? And I don't know. There are still a few more episodes in the season, so I don't know if we'll get all the answers this coming week, but at least uh, one of the lines in the preview implied that they find the origin. So we'll see. We'll see. Now, I'm getting a feeling that that the cause is going to end up being a big bad, or we're going to find out that this was caused by sentient beings. And we've talked about this before, Michael. I, I think I'm hoping that it has a natural cause so that we can explore this theme of conservation of resources and and the environment and the like. But uh, we'll 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 wait and see what what they do here. Or was it a consequence of discovery traveling in time? 
That wouldn't that be interesting? That that would be kind of like uh, all good things, right? I don't Ricard's know. Why, trying to yeah. find out what what the source of this uh, anomaly anomaly is, and it turns out that he's the source. Yeah, uh, wouldn't that be something? So, That's I an don't interesting know. Idea. I don't know why traveling in time for their, for nine hundred and thirty years would have caused them to hesitate a hundred years ago and then complete. Uh, who knows? I don't know. But uh, the writers have had a lot more time to figure this out than we have. Oh, that's true. That's true. So that's this week's episode. We want to thank you for joining us. Now, we do this every week. The Star Trek Academy podcasts are about every new Star Trek episode of every series. You can find us at the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And that site also has links to several platforms for your podcast app. So we'll see you next week for the Discovery episode entitled The Sanctuary.